0: Welcome to the Tax Girl podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Erb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. The OECD recently released details and proposed legislation on its global minimum tax plan. But questions still linger, including whether the timeline is realistic. To talk about this today, I've invited George Salis back to the show. George is a principal economist and tax policy advisor at Vertex Inc. Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thank you very much, Kelly. It is good to be back.
0: So, Today, we're going to talk about the OECD, which is making huge headlines right now. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with where we are in the process because it feels like it's been going on for a while, can you give us a quick synopsis of where we are in there in the plan before we start talking about the future?
1: Well, yes, this is actually has been coming along for nearly four years, as most of the audience know, back in uh, twenty fourteen, the OECD first came out with the base erosion and profit shifting 15 action initiative or plan. Then, as that became to be implemented and worked out, although not completely due to its fruition yet, last year there was a second effort unveiled, known as the unified approach under pillar one and pillar two, sometimes it's also known as BEPS. or base erosion and profit shifting 2.0, because it actually extends the work that was left out or left over arising from the 15 Action Plan.
0: And the plan was basically there to kind of stop what they were calling like this race to the bottom, right, for tax rates. I mean, that was the general
1: emphasis. Actually, that has been there for quite a while, since 1988, 1998 to be exact. There was a lot of publications made not only by the OECD, but the European Union on the harmful tax competition that was already occurring, not only because of profit shifting and planning through tax havens or offshore financial centers, but also because it was already beginning to have a tremendous amount of fiscal and economic impacts in developing nations and even mature economies. So this has been going on for a while. And finally, last year, we, or I should say the world, unveiled through the OECD the 15%, originally 21% proposed by the Biden administration under his election bid to the U.S. presidency, and eventually settled a 15% global minimum tax agreement. Mm -hmm. Now, I should say real quick, that originally, again, twenty-one percent. Some people or some nations thought it would be twenty, and then eventually it settled on fifteen percent was the acceptable amount.
0: And that was, a, as you mentioned, it was a bit controversial because there are some nations that do have rates below that. I mean, obviously the U.S. does not, but there are some nations like Ireland that had a rate that was lower than fifteen percent. How did they get there? What do you know if there was any kind of negotiation? I mean, obviously, there were negotiations, but and I know there was pressure, but how did they get to
1: 15? That is very interesting because you have to remember that this PEPs 2.0 or the unified approach is part of what is actually known as the inclusive framework. And at first, many were asking how inclusive, including myself, how inclusive is it's really? The framework where a lot of developing nations or even not only developing nations, but mid-income nations were actually not being included directly by way of the deal. Mm -hmm. So what happens was that you always have a kind of recalcitrant countries, holdover countries that will object to anything that comes close below their own national tax rate acceptable and already settled under current international tax norms, or perhaps even under their domestic laws. So originally, there were three countries. The major economies were Ireland, of course, part of the EU, Hungary, and Estonia, all EU countries. The interesting part is that he took a lot of international tax diplomacy by the Biden administration jointly, if I may say this, by Brussels, by the European Union financial ministers and others to convince them that in the long run, it would be made up. Eventually, this rate will set out. And if not, the so-called digital service taxes that were imposed by the United States will cause a major break between the economic powers and the OECD groups. So eventually, both Hungary and Ireland relented. And eventually, even Estonia came third. However, you do know that there are still other countries within the inclusive framework that have not relented. And interestingly enough, there are, uh, for example, Kenya, Nigeria, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka have yet to fully relent. They've already began to concede, but not entirely. So they are not yet considered to be a part of the inclusive framework. So it took some finagling, it took some negotiations, and this is the problem here. The problem is that it's going to take a lot more of international tax diplomacy and economic and fiscal diplomacy to bring this about, not just in the short run, during and after COVID, if ever there is such a thing, but even for the next three to five years, given that elections are coming to the U.S., et cetera.
0: Is COVID slowing down those efforts? I would think that not being able to meet in person as much would be a challenge to diplomacy in in those circumstances.
1: I believe so. Although they like to think and they often express that their negotiations are up to date, you have to remember that the OECD comprises the G20 nations, okay? Most of the G20 nations. And also within them you have the G7. So not meeting in person always is a setback of a sort. All the communications remain open, and they were able to not only announce the prospective agreement, mm-hmm. but then after in October, 136 nations that eventually become 138 will eventually agree to move forward. So. I call it the agreement to agree to move forward. (laughs)
0: Sure, yeah.
1: And that's what it is.
0: And so what comes next then? So they've agreed to agree. Most nations have signed on. So what's the next step?
1: Well, the next step would be the drafting of an international multilateral treaty or convention that would not just supplement, but actually reform the international tax rules as we know today, that there were actually, of course, early, late 19th century. Some people say that they go back before World War I. I like to think that because of trade and mercantilism, it actually goes back a little bit while longer than that. But during the digital economy, and the global digital economy era, obviously, little by little, all this has become arcade. And it is true and it is a correct move for us to move forward with a revamping of international tax rules and domiciliary rules and residence rules. And the reason all that is important because of the physical presence of corporations in certain countries. So by moving into economic nexus and taxing rights where the sales uh, actually occur and event and the attribution, or I should say attribution of profits to those jurisdictions and leave them there, it's, it's all proper under today, but it's easier said than done, as you know.
0: Right. And so once they agree, then the individual nations, I assume most of them, because I know in the U.S., they need to go back and then have that ratified inside their own countries, which could be a challenge for the U.S., right? Because there is some opposition to the lower which the tax rate and, and the, the structure in, I believe, the Senate.
1: That is true. But actually, of course, we're U.S.-centric, so we wanted to look at the United States. And I can speak to that in a second. But what, what needs to be realized here in the United States is that the Europeans have their own problems, okay? Mm-hmm. In other words, while France, Germany, and other countries are driving harder the effort. Because they already have proposed many, including the former, the former EU member, of the UK, all had and uh, have suspended unilateral digital service taxes in lieu of a global digital service tax that is embedded mm-hmm. within Pillar Two proposals, which we'll talk uh, perhaps in a, in a few minutes. What we have to understand is that Hungary, who was one of those holdover countries at first, also has some. Populist and nationalistic concerns of his own, recently mm-hmm. over the holidays, you may have heard that Poland is a certain more judicial independent above of that of the EU. I don't know if you have uh, have seen that. So in other words, countries are awakening to some sort and and when we say nationalistic or populistic, not necessarily politically, but asserting what I would like to discuss or say, their own fiscal or tax sovereign. Right. And of course, this will eventually reawaken here in the United States as well. So just like the United States may have domestic obstacles within our agenda and their population, we have them too. And of course this president Biden is, is actually experienced some of that uh, some of those ripples.
0: And so moving ahead, and we know that you know in the US we're struggling a little bit just to get our our own budget and taxation plans through right that's not even going to be revisited until january does that look like the kind of legislature that would be able to approve whatever needs to be approved in time to meet the oecd's timeline perhaps but that's optimistic that is a much more optimistic answer than i than i expected yeah
1: maybe maybe let me explain let me explain. We, we talked about the Europeans having their problems, and we have ours too. But it is beyond just fiscal and tax economics. It is actually also a little bit of economic competitiveness that not only the United States, but the rest of the world will like to reassert themselves in the, again, if there's such a thing in the post-COVID era, a multilateral treaty. Will take the ascent of every single nation, including ours, mm-hmm. and depending the political realities and temperatures, the climate in their own countries, they will be able to to actually do this or not. The Europeans, for example, have always resisted corporate and income taxation. Be up to the EU indirect taxation and VAT is actually more up to a single scheme or regime within the EU, but not necessarily through directives, not necessarily or regulation, do you have that in the EU. In the United States, President Biden, of course, is depending on the bill back better, mm-hmm. passed the House, but it still has not passed the Senate. And you have to remember that, for example, many people sometimes laugh or forget that there is not one 15% proposal, but actually two, one domestic and one international. The build back better has the alternative minimum tax, corporate income tax 15% embedded in tax proposal, and I like to call it a minimum tax reform of a sort, together with, as you know, with the guilty rules and the feed rules and other international tax pro- proposals at BII, That's what I mean by FEEDI will have to be scaled back or adjusted as these negotiations go on. The Senate already has somewhat signaled, <laughs> and both on the Democratic side, on the Republican side, that you will need senatorial assent. You will need approval of the Senate in order to pass this. And therefore, depending on this move on the bill Batter. Build Back Better pact, then you will be able to move on with the 15% global minimum tax under pillar
0: two. So when other nations are also considering, as you mentioned, their own problems, do you think they're looking to the U.S. to see what we're going to do? Or do you think that they are moving forward on their own you know, with the idea that we've all kind of decided that we're all in this together. So the assumption is that it's going to move forward. Like if I were if I were a state that was already hesitant, am I looking to see if the U.S. is going to jump too?
1: Well, actually, that's an excellent question. I want you to know that I, I believe that before we get to a multinational tax convention that will eventually be consequenced in a treaty by 2020 through January or I'll be a bit more optimistic sometime during the first quarter of 2020 2023, excuse me. I believe that there are certain what I call critical contingencies that have to be in place. And those critical contingencies are first and foremost, how the European, by that time in a post-COVID era, if at all, will already see there by the third or fourth quarter this year. Let us see what happens. There's a lot of uncertainty, or I should say, as the economist mentioned recently, certainty of uncertainty in the very near future. Okay. So that's my hesitancy by saying the will will be time. Is it possible? Yes. But what is the likelihood? I don't think it is probable, but what is the likelihood? And the likelihood right now, I would say 40%, 30 to 40% of better. Because there are too many dependencies, there are many contingencies, and one of them is, including the United States, how our internal political climate will adhere and actually follow a multinational treaty convention that can undercut competition and economic and growth, should we say, expansion in a time of post-COVID. You have to, everything today has to be put into that perspective. It's not merely fiscal and tax alone. So I would think that the Senate would have to literally, this needs to be negotiated here, while at the same time we make progress in negotiations outside of the United States with all the countries that are part of the inclusive framework. One of the things that worries me is what I call exemptions or exclusion many countries are seeking to have an exemption or exclusion based on industries or based on quantity. For example, the city of London is is seeking its own exemption to this. Other countries will probably seek exemptions, And then that will detract and diminish the fair tax appendage and clauses that will come in a, should we say, In a global minimum tax, 15%. So all these dependencies, both inside and outside of the United States, are actually linked together. Make no mistake.
0: Right. And when you talk about the exceptions, all I could think of is, is, you know, that's exactly what makes the U.S. tax code so sticky, right? Like we say that we're going to do something and then there's always the exception. And I mean, it's what makes tax fun, but it's also what makes it complicated. One of the things that you mentioned, um, you were talking about economic competition. That, of course, has been something that's been debated for some time while we've been talking about OECD, depending or the, the potential legislation. It depends on, I guess, who you are and what you think is fair, right, about whether or not you think this would actually benefit economic competition. And it is curious to me on the U.S. side, because for years, one of the kind of laments is that companies are leaving the U.S. for these lower tax jurisdictions, which folks have argued is not good for the U.S. I mean, obviously, it depends on who who you are and what your stake is, whether you agree with that or not. One would think that by lowering or saying that there will be kind of this stop to the race to the bottom, that it would arguably benefit the United States because. If our rate is the same as Ireland's, then why would you go to Ireland unless there was something there like a particular expertise or resource that you needed? so the argument um, you know it's, it's interesting to me where where do you kind of see that that discussion like do you do you feel like it is artificially increasing economic competition? is it decreasing
1: it? what do you see the effect of the agreement well I think that should we be able to, in some form or timely manner, arrive in a first or, uh, first or second quarter 2023 agreement, in the long run, it will benefit every single nation within the inclusive frame. But that will take a tremendous amount of international cooperation. And to an extent, I know this is a bad word in the tax community, but they'll, we'll have to, we will have to create some sort of trade harmonization to go along with that. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to have competition based on productivity, on labor, on cycles or jurisdiction, for example, a developed country versus an underdeveloped country or a tax haven, there's always going to be winners and losers. For example, When you eradicate all the financial centers and tax havens, what happens to the Barbados? What happens to the Bahamas? What happens to all these banking centers that have been moving, not just necessarily through banking reserves made up of these profits, but even within the EU? What would happen to the Luxembourg? What would happen to the Ireland? What would happen? And there's where you will see some frictional decay to those relationships. So again, there will be winners and losers within international relations, international economic relations, but there will be winners and losers when it comes, of course, the biggest country will always fare better than the development countries. That is a given. In other words, we will know that that happens. But you also have to remember that these arguments of what you're talking about, capital importing versus capital exporting countries, have been around for years and for years they've been saying that if you make the global playing field level, neutrality would return in a way that it will be beneficial to the other. However, that has never been, as a matter of economic evidence, have never been proven yet. And again, it's because of asymmetric pulsations in economic systems and fiscal traditions when it comes to taxation, in enforcement rules, et cetera. And also that you have to remember that by default, many of these one, roughly 100 companies that are targeted by this, and eventually I believe they will increase, will always come from top economic powerhouse nations. So these arguments also predates COVID. Again, oh, sure. COVID has given us a blank slate. We will need to see that within the, within 2022 and early 2023.
0: And you were, um, I think, alluding to Pillar 2 just now when you were talking about the, the companies that might be targeted. That's another, I know, talking point in the U.S. because the the sense is that there would be a disproportionate number of U.S. companies that would be impacted by Pillar 2. Compared to, you know, the other 100 plus nations, is that something, is that why you think that number would increase? Or where do you see that going?
1: Well, the question is, are you going to embed a clause in the treaties that says that the number will be closed only to the economic threshold that right now are being recited, uh, which is uh, less than one billion will not be. For example, it would reallocate 125 millions in profits in certain countries, they say billions, that is, although they will not in other countries. So there's still a certain amount of discussion to go whether you're going to foreclose that only to 100 countries or will the list be open to other countries as they acquire or rise to those economic thresholds, pretty much. Forgive me for saying, but pretty much like in Wayfair in U.S. state taxation. So will that happen? And we don't know that. That is one of the minutia, one of the treaty details that will have to truly be worked out. You have to remember that there are two pillars here. And so far, the world is looking only at pillar two. But yet the OECD and others have said that we cannot literally pass pillar two without dealing with pillar one. I don't know, are they committed to that path, that treaty path, or are they committed to passing one without the other, or is this an either-or or or either-and scenario? So that's why I keep saying that this is going to take a little bit more cooperation, which makes me more hesitant as to the timeliness of passing that treaty by January 2023. Can it be done? If the alignments and the start, political starts across the world are correct, yes. But whether or not this will be done, considering all the work that's still to be done in Pillar 2, let alone Pillar 1, the question, again, is how stable will that agreement be? And will it survive other elections in the U.S. and other countries? Will this be, forgive me for the correlation, I don't mean to And you can leave this out. But will this be another Iran nuclear deal on the fiscal and tax side? And what I mean by that is, can another administration come in and say, we didn't like that deal. And once before you breached the bilateral treaties by bringing in digital service taxes and will and now we can do the same. Right. In other words, how strong will this be?
0: I always say what one administration gives, another can take away. I mean, that's true in all tax policy. It's We've seen it. We've seen it in the states, seen it in the discussions around capital gains. I mean, it it is something that you're right. It's It's not unlikely. Since you mentioned digital services, I wanted to go back to that for a minute, because the last time you were on the show, you and I were talking about digital service taxes, especially as it was applicable inside the U.S. And I know that one of the sticking points for the U.S. is that they wanted, um, I'm going to say the word guarantee. I know that that wasn't exactly what they asked for, but they wanted a guarantee that company, uh, that other countries would not impose digital services taxes on U.S. companies because that was a concern, especially in countries like France. Do you think, like let's assume that happens, do you think that will have any impact on digital service taxes within the U.S. And I know that's uh, like a little bit of an oddball question, but it's kind of where my head goes when we start saying other countries, we don't want you to impose these kinds of taxes because we don't think that they're fair, but we're going to do them inside our own country. Do you think we're still going to move in that direction if there is a global agreement?
1: Well, as you know, the council and state taxation and other organizations and other uh, organizations are actually saying that that would diminish the impulse, the acceleration that some states such as New York, Maryland, and Nebraska and others have towards moving with their own digital service taxes. And probably that will be challenged to some degree Mm -hmm. or continue to be challenged. For example, in Maryland, they're still trying to decide whether to dismiss the lawsuits or not. But it'll certainly will take away from that impulse for the, it will decelerate the impulse. Now, why? Because it also, just like we're seeing probably in the Senate, it will have some constitutional obstacles and barriers. For example, in the Senate, the adoption of the global minimum tax will face a constitutional barrier. And that is, of course, Article 2, Section 2, in which the Senate has, is the one that should, as you know, ratify All foreign or international treaties. Mm -hmm. Well, the president will not be able to do that on the power of an executive agreement. Okay, if you can take that now to the states, you will see that the Commerce Clause and the Due Process Clause and other constitutional clauses of more of an economic pressure will become more significant if the United States actually is successful in suppressing unilateral digital service taxes in other countries. And you're absolutely right. There is no guarantee, although we do have commitment from major European nations within the OECD and outside of it, uh, that they will suspend. And by suspend, do not mean cancel. I believe, including our, our important ally, the UK, they're talking about more holding in abeyance, keeping in abeyance, and if the United States commits to that global deal. Gotcha.
0: So kind of as a summary, we talked about the, the, the challenges that they had faced, the agreement that they have reached. So what should people look out for next? I know you've talked about some timelines, but if you had to choose kind of like one thing, because there's a lot of moving parts, and I think it's really easy for folks to get overwhelmed when they're looking at coverage. If if they had to look out for like one big discussion agreement country, like one theme, what would you tell folks to look out for next?
1: What I would say to tax practitioners and of all areas, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, international tax practitioners, is to look at the interplay between our domestic pending legislation, such as the Build Back Better Act, and how that is going to be treated in the Senate. You have to remember the deal that that the administration will need a a minimum of 67 votes. The Democrats only hold hold 50, 51, of course, with with the uh, vice president. But that is the first interplay. That will give us a signal whether we we get a move forward, go ahead into the global minimum taxes. If not, we're going to end up with a domestic corporate minimum tax with an alternative minimum tax attached, revived, attached to it, and another 15% global minimal tax on top of it on foreign, on, in foreign jurisdiction. But on top of that, how are we going to harmonize our guilty and our FDII And foreign tax credits and that all these things that need to be ironed out before we move to that.
0: So it's not happening anytime soon.
1: I don't believe so. Right. We're not even going to revisit the Build Back Better Act, at least until mid January, I believe, until they return. And then there's some negotiation. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to stop negotiating internationally. Because it could happen, I have envisioned that it could happen in reverse. you could have so much success negotiating with the Europeans and eventually even with the Chinese in trade that you will promise to do something more on how inflation is going that they can then see it more optimistically in the u s Senate That is possible, and in fact it, it, I don't know if you can say probably foreseeable, but it could happen. There's a likelihood of that, that it could work in reverse.
0: Well, we'll have to have you back on the show closer to 2023 then to see what happened. and we can compare notes. Thank you so much for, for being on today. If folks wanted to find you either on the web or on social
1: media, where would you send them? I would send them to LinkedIn. Okay. Primarily and secondarily, they can go to our company web page under, of course, the chief tax office and resources. And you can also find us there as well. Find me there.
0: Awesome. And I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes. Thank you again for being on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Once again, it is my pleasure always to address the audience.
0: I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be. The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be 1 million, about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.